Good morning, Church. Our second Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter number 2, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter number 2, verses 1 to 12. The Bible reads, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of Jews? We saw his stars in the east and have come to worship him. When the king Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from, the, from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for, this, for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw, this, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, incense, and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of God. Good privilege. Thank you very much indeed. Well, do please keep that passage open in front of you. And uh, let's pray as we look at this marvellous text together. Let's ask for God's help. Well, Heavenly Father, after the extraordinary year that we've had, it's a tremendous privilege to hold in our hands your word. And so we pray that in the next few minutes, what we know not you will teach us, what we have not you will give us, and what we are not you will make us. And we ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, the the visit of the Magi and the humble worship that they offer to Jesus Christ uh, is surely one of the most attractive episodes in the Christmas story. Um, It's every Hollywood filmmaker's dream, I think. Um, Just think of it, exotic visitors wearing exotic clothing, bringing exotic gifts to the infant Christ. And yet, uh, this familiar story, I think, has suffered by being so popular. Uh, Over the years, it's been kind of sentimentalised and adapted to include a number of elements that are not actually there in Matthew's text. For example, there is no evidence in Matthew's account that the Magi were kings. Uh, We may sometimes sing 
we three kings of Orient are, but that is incorrect. We're not told they were kings. They were magi, wise men. They, they were in search of a king, but they were not kings themselves. Then again, in Matthew's account, there's no evidence that there were only three of them. We're not told how many there were. What we are told is that they brought three gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh, and people have jumped from the three gifts to the three givers, but we're not actually told how many there were. And there's no evidence in Matthew's account that they came to a stable. Matthew says they came into the house where Jesus was. Evidently, by the time the Magi arrived, they'd moved out of the stable and into the house. <clears throat> and uh, there's no evidence that when the Magi arrived, that Jesus was still a baby. Uh, Matthew, you'll notice in the text, calls him a child. And uh, in verse 16, which we didn't read, uh, we're told that Herod gave orders that all the baby boys under the age of two should be killed. So it seems that by that time, Jesus was a bit older. Now, friends, I mention these things not to upset us in any way, but because here at St Barnabas we have a very high view of the Bible. We believe in the inspiration and the authority of the Bible, and therefore it's really important, isn't it, to make sure what the Bible does say as opposed to what we think it says. Now, I wonder if we're all clear that Matthew, Mark, Luke and John were not really historians. Uh, although what they wrote was history, they're not historians, they're not biographers, they are evangelists, they are theologians. In other words, they've got a message that they want us to hear. So this morning I'm going to ask, why did Matthew include this particular story in his book? What did he want us to learn from it? I suggest to you that the first thing that he wanted us to learn is this. No trouble is too great to seek for Jesus Christ. Uh, whatever that star was, and many ingenious attempts have been made to explain it, so some have suggested it might have been a conjunction of the planets Jupiter and Saturn, and others have said it might have been a comet, perhaps Halley's Comet, and still others have said it might have been what they call a nova, which is a, a star that flares brightly for a short period and then fades away. Whatever it was, uh, these astrologers, these magi, these scholars from the East were convinced by what they saw in the sky that a great king had been born. And it's very interesting that uh, some years later, in AD 66, another group of wise men visited the Emperor Nero in Rome. They also were astrologers, and it seems that astrology was a highly respected discipline in those days, and the Magi were experts. But the point is this, whatever the star was, 
nothing, absolutely nothing, could stop these wise men in their determination to find the king who had been born. Uh, It seems that they came from the area known as Mesopotamia, what we today would call Iran and Iraq. And it's a rather lovely postscript to this story that today there are millions of people, literally, in those two countries seeking the king. Well, if these men did come from Mesopotamia, uh, they would have travelled about 500 miles. Their journey would have taken several weeks. Uh, They left behind the security of their home and family. And although they probably skirted around the desert on their journey, they risked attack from wild animals and also from bandits. They endured the discomfort of scorching heat by day and bitter cold by night. But nothing, nothing would deter them from their goal. And in God's goodness, their search was rewarded. Now friends, in contrast to these magi, uh, our own efforts in pursuit of the truth perhaps look rather feeble by comparison. I guess most of us are familiar with the Christmas story, the fantastic Christian claim that Almighty God became a human being in history when Augustus was emperor in Rome and that God personally visited planet Earth in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the claim. But what, I wonder... Have we done about it? Have we taken the trouble to verify these amazing claims for ourselves? Because the truth is that most people don't bother to do that. They simply dismiss the claim without any investigation. So I know several highly educated people who rejected Christianity without ever bothering to read the foundation documents in the New Testament. But let me ask, how can you dismiss something so important without investigation? Uh, Is that wise? Is it intellectually honest? Let me remind you that uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, which many people say they can accept, Christian or not, Jesus makes a beautiful promise. Uh, He said, seek and you will find. And he was probably echoing a verse straight out of the Old Testament where God said, you will seek me and you will find me if you search for me with all your heart. So I wonder if there's perhaps someone listening this morning who's never come to know Jesus Christ. Uh, You've never come to know him in a personal way. And I wonder if the reason is that you've never actually sought him. And in this matter, the Magi put us to shame. No trouble was too great for them to search for the king, and no trouble should be too great for us. So that's the first thing. 
No trouble is too great to seek Jesus Christ. Now here's the second thing that we learn. No people are too alien or foreign to find him. Uh, The Magi were foreigners, that's one of the key features of this story, and uh, originally uh, they were a tribe from the land of the Medes. Uh, They're mentioned by uh, the historian Herodotus, and when the Persians conquered the land of the Medes, these people retained their distinct cultural identity. They were astrologer priests. They were absolutely fascinated by the stars in the sky. So they noted the stars that were stable and standing still, and they also noted the stars that appeared to be moving, and they were very interested in the elements. So they experimented with them, especially, for example, with fire which they kept burning in their temples day and night. Now, it was the Greeks that called them magi, which means wise men, and which gives us, of course, our English word magic. And yet, in spite of these racial and cultural distinctives that made them so totally different from Judaism and the Jews they still came to seek the infant king in order to worship him. Indeed, uh, the two groups that we read about in the Christmas story who came to worship Jesus, the shepherds on the one hand and the magi on the other, they could not possibly have been more different from each other. Uh, Racially, the shepherds were Jews and the magi were Gentiles. Intellectually, uh, the shepherds were simple and uneducated, while the magi were highly educated scholars. Socially, the shepherds were poor, while the magi, judging by their generous gifts, were wealthy. But despite these barriers which so separate people today, racial, intellectual, and social, these two groups were absolutely united in their worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Magi were forerunners of millions and millions of Gentiles, including ourselves here this morning, who've fallen down to worship the Lord Jesus. And friends, if you're a thinking person, and I'm sure you are, it's striking, is it not, that this story is recorded only in Matthew, which is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Uh, But even though this Gospel is the most Jewish, Matthew has recorded several unique insights that you don't find anywhere else into the call of God to the Gentiles to worship Christ. So, uh, obviously, the Gospel begins with this Um, account of the visit of the Magi as representatives of the Gentile world and Matthew's Gospel ends with the commission of the resurrected Jesus sending the disciples out to make uh, disciples of all nations, all Gentiles and in the middle of Matthew's Gospel there is a tremendous promise from Jesus 
that people will come from the east and west and from the north and the south and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of God. So you see, Matthew was absolutely convinced that Jesus was not only the king of the Jews, but he was the saviour and lord of the whole world. Now, friends, as pluralism spreads around the world today, pluralism is the ideology that says that all religions are equally valid, as that idea spreads around the world today, we need to remember that all non-Christian religions are ethnic religions. That is to say, they are limited to a particular people in a particular culture. So, Hinduism, for example, uh, is almost entirely restricted to Indian people. Uh, Buddhism to people in perhaps other parts of Asia. Uh, Confucianism, largely to the Chinese culture. Shintoism to the Japanese culture. Judaism is almost entirely restricted to the Jewish culture. And Islam to people of Arabic descent or to those conquered by Islam at the point of a sword. But you see, of all the religions of the world, only Christianity is not an ethnic religion. It is not limited to any particular people or any particular culture. It is a world faith. And it's certainly not a Western religion. Can I remind you that Jesus was certainly not a white man because he was Semitic in origin, he was almost certainly dark-skinned. And isn't it interesting, it's not an accident that Jesus was born in Palestine because Palestine is at the crossroads of three continents, isn't it? Namely Asia, Africa and Europe. And uh, I'm so thankful, as I'm sure you are, that here at St Barnabas, God has given us an experience of the cultural diversity of the Christian faith. So that on any given Sunday morning, we're privileged to welcome people, not only from Africa, but from Asia, and from Europe, and from North America. And that diversity demonstrates, I think, in a tangible, visible way, the universal appeal of Jesus Christ, irrespective of all ethnicity. Now you see, this is what brought the shepherds in from the fields and it's what brought the magi from the east. And it is this that still functions like a magnet attracting people today from all cultures and actually it fulfills the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who in the Gospel of John said but I when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. It's actually one of the most convincing proofs that Jesus is the saviour of the world. So are you with me? No trouble 
is too great to seek him. No people is too alien to find him. He belongs to all of us. And then thirdly, no offering is too precious to give him. In the middle of verse 11, Matthew says, Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Gold, of course, is a precious metal, and incense and myrrh are precious spices. But friends, in contrast to their gifts, our gifts can seem sometimes rather modest, would you agree? One of the songs that we sometimes sing at Christmas goes like this, What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would play my part. But what I can, I give him. Give him my heart. Now that, you see, is what Almighty God is looking for from each one of us. The worship of our hearts. Not that we remember him just once a year at Christmas. Not that we remember him once a week on Sundays and then forget about him between Monday and Saturday. But rather that we serve him with our whole heart. At home, at work, in public life, and in the secret places of the heart, keeping absolutely nothing from him, but giving him our whole lives. A pastor I used to know was teaching John's Gospel to a group of children in a Sunday school class. And uh, at the end of the year, he decided he would set them a short written examination. I don't know whether Elisa does that, I'm sure she probably does. And uh, he asked them about 30 comprehension questions. And then at the end, he asked them a personal question. And it was based on John's Gospel, chapter 1. And this was the question. He said, Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Philip brought Nathanael to Jesus. Who have you brought to Jesus? And a one little girl, who was only ten years old, answered... I have brought myself to Jesus. Now that, of course, is an absolutely brilliant answer, isn't it? Because you can't bring anybody else until you first brought yourself. And to move from what that little girl said to a former Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop William Temple, he said this, It is absolutely futile saying to people, Go to the cross! We've got to be able to say to them, come to the cross. And there are actually only two voices that can issue that invitation. One is the voice of the sinless Redeemer, and obviously that is not us. But the other is the voice of the forgiven sinner, who knows himself or herself to be forgiven. And that, my friends, is our responsibility. You see, in the end, there are only two possible responses to Jesus Christ. 
And they're perfectly illustrated in the contrasting figures in our story of Herod the Great on the one hand and the Magi on the other. Herod was determined to destroy Jesus, while the Magi were even more determined to worship him. Herod's response to Jesus was actually totally in line with what we know of his character. Uh, His long reign as king was stained with blood. It was the Romans who put him on the throne, and it was the Romans, interestingly, who called him king of the Jews. But he wasn't king of the Jews. He wasn't even a Jew himself. He was a foreigner. Uh, Interestingly, his father was an Edomite, and his mother was an Arabian princess. So Herod had absolutely no right to the throne and no right to the title King of the Jews. As a result, his throne was never secure and he lived in utter terror of all potential rivals. In fact, whenever he sensed a a challenge from a potential rival, he immediately had them liquidated. So he killed his own wife, Marianne, He killed his own mother, Alexandra. He killed three of his sons. He killed more than half the members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, as well as numerous cousins and uncles and relatives. And no doubt it was for that reason that the Emperor Augustus said of King Herod, it is safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Today, I think we would probably say that uh, Herod had a terminal case of paranoia because when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem and began to ask, well, where is the king of the Jews? The question filled Herod with alarm. King of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews. Who is this person presuming to take my title? Now, can I say, friends, we face exactly the same situation today. There are many, many people, and perhaps there are some listening this morning, who see Jesus as a rival, as a threat, as a nuisance, as an embarrassment. He's a threat to our independence because, of course, we all want to live our own lives, thank you very much, without interference from anybody else. And yet, of course, that is precisely what Jesus Christ does. In C.S. Lewis's memorable phrase, Jesus is the transcendental interferer. He's transcendental in the sense that he comes from a place outside our world. And when he's come, he interferes in my personal life. So, there are many people who regard him as a rival, as a nuisance, as an embarrassment and want to get rid of him. Uh, John Stott, uh, we've been reading a book as a church by John Stott just recently, but John Stott tells of a time some years ago when he was leading a mission on a university campus in Canada. And in between the talks, he was trying to explain the way of salvation and forgiveness to one of the lecturers at the university. 
And John Stott said to him that if this young man was going to accept Jesus as his Lord and Saviour, he would have to put Jesus at the very centre of his life and move himself to the perimeter. To which this young man replied, and I'm not very good at American accents, I'm not sure I could cope with this decentralisation. And John Stott goes on to say that decentralisation is an excellent word for conversion. Because you see, to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour is quite literally to be decentralised. It is to put him at the centre and to move ourselves to the perimeter. So as we close this morning, this text is asking all of us a question. It's the most important question that any of us will ever have to answer. And it is simply this. What have you done with Jesus Christ? Do you, like Herod, see Jesus as a threat to be disposed of? Or do you, like the wise men, see him as a king who is worthy of all your worship? Because, my dear friends, there is no third option. You are either one or the other. And what you do with Jesus Christ determines your eternal destiny. So, on this Christmas Day morning, if you are not yet a Christian, I beg you to give up your resistance to Jesus Christ. I want to beg you to turn from your rebellion to Jesus. I want to beg you to come and kneel beside those wise men and bring to Jesus Christ the worship of your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for those magi, those wise men, for the trouble they took in seeking you, for the presence they offered when they found you. And we pray that we might be amongst those who imitate their fine example. Help us to take trouble to find you, and grant that when we do, that we would give you the worship you deserve. For the glory of your great and worthy name we ask it. Amen. I'm going to invite the music team to come forward.